From the Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy, this is The Steady Stater, a podcast dedicated to discussing limits to growth in the steady state economy. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Brian Check, and our guest today is Bill Ryerson. You might say our themes today are population media and messaging, because Bill is the president of the Population Media Center and a world-class champion of population messaging. Bill's background is in the natural sciences. He has a bachelor's degree in biology from Amherst College and a master's in biology from Yale with a specialization in ecology and evolution. He was recognized by Nonprofit Pro as one of the 2019 Nonprofit Professionals of the Year as well as a Lifetime Achievement Award winner. Bill Ryerson, welcome to the Steady Stater. Brian, thanks so much for having me on. Bill, we noticed the global population meter on your website, which is www.populationmedia.org. Right now, in real time, it says the global population is 7,828,641,785 and counting. Over to the right of that, it's charting net growth during our visit. You know, if this was a call-in show, we could have a contest to see who comes closest to estimating how much the population is going to grow just over the course of our conversation. I bet you have a pretty good feel for the formula, though. So what's your guess on how many more Earthlings we'll have by the end of the episode? Well, we're adding about 225,000 people. to the dinner table tonight who weren't there last night. So to make the math easy, um, in a 24-hour day, we're adding, say, 240,000. So that's about 10,000 an hour, and 20 minutes would be a third of that, so 3,333 to be exact. (laughs) That's awesome. I mean, the math was very impressive. I'm not going to say that outcome is great because obviously it's very scary with the over growth we already have. You know, but, when you think about the, um, the addition of 225,000 net people to the dinner table every night, uh, the demand for food, water, housing, uh, land space for growing that food, all of that is uh, immense. Absolutely. And uh, all right, Bill, so what's the mission of the Population Media Center and how do you go about it? The simple answer to that is we're working to create a sustainable planet with equal rights for all. Um, The the way we go about it is soap operas. And I say that somewhat facetiously, but in fact, people don't go home at night to watch documentaries or listen to health messages. They go home at night to relax and be entertained. And so we're doing crime time, serialized dramas in which key characters evolve from the middle of the cultural road in whatever country we're working in under the conflicting influence of positive and negative characters. And these key middle of the road characters gradually evolve into positive role models as, as they sort out who's right and who's wrong from the advice they're getting from the positive and negative characters. And by the time they make that transition, the audience is already in love with them 
naming their children after them. And so when they see these characters adopting new behaviors and they see the benefits of those new behaviors to the characters, many people in the audience follow suit. And I'll give you just one quick example. In Sierra Leone, we ran a 208 episode radio serial. TV is still irrelevant in Sierra Leone. And at clinics, we asked new family planning adopters what motivated their visit to the clinic. And 50% of them named our program by name. Wow, that is amazing. And how did you pick Sierra Leone? Well, that's one of 51 countries in which we've done such programs. We've picked countries where the need for this kind of programming is great, where there's very high fertility rates, uh, mm -hmm. low status of women, uh, poverty, uh, environmental destruction, uh, and other issues. We have actually a whole grid of issues that allow us to rank all the countries of the world in priority order as to where to work. Well, Bill, how did you come to be such a strong advocate for reproductive and gender issues? Was there, was there an experience in your life that tuned you into the struggles that women and girls face, especially in some of these developing countries? Um, I've certainly experienced a lot of uh, and witnessed a lot of cruelty to women and violence against women. But in fact, as you mentioned in the intro, what brought me into this field is studying ecology and looking at the fact that the current population of the planet, which round off your the number you read is close to 8 billion, uh, is not sustainable once we run out of non-renewable resources and we're using them up as we use oil, coal, and natural gas, for example. So, you know, ecologists have estimated that at a Western European lifestyle, renewable resources could support 2 billion people. So we're way beyond uh, the long-term carrying capacity of the planet. And in order to have a safe landing, we need to level off population and bring it down gradually uh, to the point that we have a sustainable population. Extending girls' education banning child marriage and modeling small family norms is critically important. Um, in some tradition, traditional societies, uh, large family norms are there and people will tell surveyors that they want 9, 10, 11, 12 children and they're not having that. So in Niger, the country with the highest fertility rate on the planet, the average fertility of births during a woman's lifetime is 9.7. Women say they want 10 and men want 13. Wow. So changing those norms requires creating charismatic characters that people relate to mm -hmm. to show the relevance of a small family. Well, that makes sense. And uh, would you say that the, the primary reason for high birth rates is simply the lack of access to contraceptive services, or is it the broader uh, educational and cultural norms that sort of uh, govern that the not only the access but the use of those services? It's cultural and informational factors that are the primary barriers to use of contraception. 
as I mentioned, in some countries, particularly West Africa, people want more than the actual fertility rate. So that's a key cultural factor. But then when you look at the other reasons given, and this is among those who don't want a pregnancy immediately and are not using a contraceptive, about 225 million women, uh, the reasons are primarily they've heard it's dangerous and there's intentional misinformation campaigns about safety of contraception. They don't think it works. Uh, and part of that is tied into fatalism. They think God determines how many children they're going to have and there's nothing they can do about it. And their husband's opposed, their religion's opposed, or they're opposed. They just don't think it's appropriate to use artificial methods of contraception. And so those are the dominant reasons given. Lack of access is only cited by about one-tenth of one percent in most countries. It's not the big barrier. Oh, I see. Very enlightening. Well, so then in addition to the the cultural norms and uh, the various barriers, which turn out not to be in a lot of cases to access per se, there's, I guess there's also the issue when it comes to sustainability of per birth, the environmental impact. And uh, so, so what is per birth, the environmental impact in some of these countries compared to the wealthy countries like the USA, Qatar, Singapore, and so on? Well, the per capita uh, impact uh, of, the, of somebody born in the United States for example, is far greater than the per capita impact of somebody born in Nigeria, Kenya, India, and many other developing countries. Um, and in fact, many environmentalists have said, okay, so really the population issue doesn't matter because where the big impact is in terms of things like climate change is um, the high consumption countries of the West. And that's Partly true, but in fact, the magnitude of population growth in the poor countries means that even with low per capita carbon emissions, for example, the addition that's projected, the median addition of 2.5 billion people from now to 2050 in poor countries is the climate equivalent of adding two United States to the planet. Hmm. So it's not, it's not everything, it's certainly uh, not unimportant either. And in fact, uh, a guy named Brian O'Neill at um, University of Colorado Boulder did a detailed analysis of what could be achieved with regard to the climate crisis by a major effort to promote family planning and small family norms, and he found mm -hmm it would yield about 25% of what is necessary to avoid catastrophic climate change at a cost per technology, i.e. contraceptive, that's much lower than the other technologies being used to address climate issues. Well, thanks for that insight, Bill. You know, I'd like to, to mention proudly enough and gratefully too that you're one of our notable signatories at CASI. So you may recall our position is that low-income countries actually need to focus on ensuring their citizens a healthy standard of living before they start adopting steady state policies per se. 
We certainly don't judge them for their consumption the way we urge consumer reform in wealthy countries. Although I have to say, it seems like affording women and girls these reproductive rights and providing them with education would accomplish some of both. Yeah, increasing the standard of living and stabilizing population. So I, I have to ask, do you, uh, do you sometimes find support from pro-growth sources as well? Well, to some extent, yes. And in fact, I think you and I uh, are in agreement that growth of economic welfare in the poorest countries is called for at the same time that the overdeveloped, overconsuming countries reduce their environmental impact. One of the things that has some of the pro-growth people supporting us is that, in fact, when fertility rates come down uh, in very rapidly growing youthful countries that are mired in poverty as a result of high fertility, people are not trying to feed six or eight children anymore. They're trying to feed two. And on the same income, they have a little money left over at the end of the month. They can put that in the bank. Uh, that builds up the capital marketplace. That allows businesses to borrow and expand. That drives up employment. That drives up wages. That gives governments taxable income that allow them to develop schools, roads, electrical supplies, other infrastructure, water supplies. And at the same time, people can spend some of their money on education. That leads to greater economic productivity. So the concept of economic development for the poorest countries is encased right in the process of reducing fertility rate, what's called the demographic dividend. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, uh, it's another brilliant stroke on the part of the Population Media Center, I think. But uh, actually, at the moment, Bill, we're going to need to take a short non-commercial break with Rick Tibbetts. Hi there. We hope you're enjoying the show. Here at Cassie, we are committed to taking the road less traveled and exposing the harms of economic growth. We unapologetically highlight the fundamental conflict between economic growth and environmental protection. The Cassie position sets the record straight on this conflict and calls for a steady state economy as a desirable alternative to economic growth. Some of the brightest scientists, economists, and sustainability thinkers in the world have signed it, and numerous forward-thinking organizations have endorsed it. We invite you to join their ranks and take a stand with us for a smarter, fully sustainable economy. Simply go to SteadyState.org, scroll down, and you will find a big button that says Sign the Cassie Position. Now, back to the show. All right, Bill, back to the show. And it looks like uh, just since we started talking, we have about 3,200 more people on the planet. Uh, so I think your, your estimate earlier was pretty darn good so far. Now, uh, I'd like to pivot a little bit to talking about the PMC itself. How about the PMC approach to supporting women and girls worldwide? Can you tell us about your, the studies that you've made of this uh, social norm change? Yes, um, what, what we've found in our work is you've got to redefine in people's minds the role of masculinity as well as femininity and help men as well as women understand the humanity of their wives and daughters 
And that can be done through emotionally based programming like melodrama, where over time people identify with a key character and very gradually that character takes them on a transition that that character is making and they're eavesdropping on the life of that character. And by Mm. the time that has happened, over 200, 300 episodes, uh, a significant portion of the audience has made that transition. I'll give you a, a, a statistic out of a show we did in Ethiopia that modeled women running for higher office. When we started the show, we did a survey that showed among men, only one-third thought it was appropriate for a woman to run for higher office. Women were uh, more favorable than men, but men were really low in their estimation of the appropriateness of a woman holding higher office. So we modeled this character who is a female who runs for higher office and becomes effective in that role. And by the end of the show, Positive attitudes among men had doubled. 66% of men in our audience believed that it was appropriate for a woman to run for higher office. So, And we had wow. the population of the country listening, so it had a huge impact nationally on attitudes about that one particular issue related to women's rights. And we've had similar impacts on attitudes about age of marriage. Um, in Senegal, our listeners were six times as likely as non-listeners to think that a woman should be at least 19 years old before she could be married. Hmm. Wow. Well, that's effective, effective work. You know, uh, changing social norms, that's crucial in steady statesmanship, we think, too. If people don't start to move away from the norm of conspicuous consumption or even thoughtless consumption, we won't ever get there. What steps would you recommend that Cassie take to try and change social norms around consumption? Should we start up a consumption media center? I think Cassie and PMC should partner in Hollywood to do some shows. We've done one show in Hollywood, and I must say, I was not eager to work in Hollywood because I think of it as highly competitive and really a shark's tank, but... um, we did a show about the lives of teenagers in East Los Angeles called East Los High, and it dealt with teen pregnancy and other issues of domestic violence. And it became the longest running program on the network Hulu and in its history and was in the top five for the five years it was on that network. It's still there uh, in their archives of people who are subscribers want to view it. And it was very effective at changing attitudes and behavior. Uh, but we haven't done one dealing with consumption, with climate-related behaviors, um, and other things that are affecting the environment. And I think it would be very good for the two organizations to work on such a program. Me too. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, we should have films showing the downsides of and I don't want to put it too strongly, but uh, the idiocy of things like Hummer driving and building at McMansions and wearing fur coats and eating caviar, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah, I think it would uh, make for some pretty, uh, some easy plots. Yeah, I, we really need to counter what is a huge 
cultural message in the West that bigger is better and that people should have more children and they should have more houses and bigger houses and aunt and bigger cars and all of that to get across that small is really beautiful and in fact necessary. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that to some extent PMC's shows have tackled other social justice issues. What would you say are the most uh, the most important of those issues besides women's rights and and uh, you know family uh, uh, equity issues and stuff? And are some of those other social justice issues really directly connected with environmental sustainability? Uh, a lot of the answer I'm going to give you does relate to the rights and status of women. So uh, gender-based violence in general, uh, female genital mutilation, which is designed to make sex painful so that women won't stray from their husbands, um, marriage by abduction, which is uh, a system where somebody grabs a schoolgirl on the street and rapes her, and then she's forced to marry her rapist. These practices are directly related to the low status of women and therefore high fertility rate, uh, but they're important in the human rights context as well. We've also addressed child trafficking uh, and the use of child slave labor. Uh, Ben and Jerry's actually got us involved in doing a project in Ivory Coast, Mali, and Burkina Faso where we dealt with the use of child slave labor in the cocoa fields of the Ivory Coast. Mm. Um, but that program also addressed reproductive health issues and HIV issues. So we've, we've dealt with a lot of human rights issues. Um, and I'll, I'll give you a text of a letter we got from a woman in Ethiopia regarding the issue of marriage by abduction. She said, thank you for dealing with the issue of marriage by abduction. Our own daughter was abducted on her way to school at age 14 and ended up married as a result. And we've been afraid to send the 12-year-old girls to school for fear the same thing would happen to them. When your program addressed this issue through the character Wu Balam, our entire village, most of whom were listening, came together and we agreed to enforce the law against marriage by abduction, which we had not realized existed and now it's safe for our 12-year-old girls to go to school. Oh, wow. Well, you know, what a rewarding uh, line of work you chose, Bill. And, I mean, it's, uh, it, it seems to be uh, really making a huge difference in the lives of people as well as the future of the planet. So, Thanks, I, Brian. It is mm-hmm. very, very rewarding. That letter and others like it, we've received hundreds of thousands of them, Mm. Uh, get me going every morning. Well, you know, and it's going to lead, it's going to segue to a kind of a tough question, but, you know, you and I are in kind of a similar boat, demographically speaking, so to speak, because neither of us have tons of decades left. So have you thought much about the life of the Population Media Center beyond Bill Ryerson? How does it work? Yeah, how does it work? How is it going to continue? And How do we make sure we don't lose that outstanding investment that you've made in the PMC? We now have a headquarters staff of 23, one of whom is an executive vice president named David Walker, and he joined about four years ago, and he now oversees 
uh, all the staff at PMC and all operations, and I supervise him. So he's in a position right now to take over if I decide it's time to sail off into the sunset. Um, and we have other staff. Also, some staff have been with us for 20 years, uh, staff being groomed to replace other key staff. Uh, plus, hmm. we're spreading the methodology through training people all over the world. We have about 65 people around the world, and then we've been training people from radio stations and other NGOs in many countries around the world so that the methodology will live on. And we're actually uh, now in discussion in starting an entertainment education institute in Mexico. So a lot is being done to make this uh, work last into the future. Oh, I'm really glad to hear that. And, uh, you know, a lot of other little nonprofits, I mean, yours isn't that little, ours is still tiny, but we really take inspiration from that. So, you know, thanks for uh, preparing for the future with the media, with the Population Media Center. And, uh, you know, at this stage, I think I want to go back to the Population Meter and remind folks that, uh, as some of us know, I think I projected uh, 5,134 new people on Earth at the beginning, and sure enough, it just hit 5,143. <laughs> wow, I underestimated. <laughs> yeah, what a, what a uh, great thing to have on your homepage to raise awareness. Uh, it's, a, it's just a pressing problem, and it, you know, keeps going, and that's why uh, the PMC is so important to all of us. Yeah, thank you, Bill, and, uh, you know, how about coming back in a few months so we can tackle uh, a more pointed, one of the more pointed issues, or maybe focus in on, on a country or two, or one of the tougher questions uh, that, that you're dealing with? I'll be happy to. Okay, great. Well, folks, that about wraps her up. We've been talking with Bill Ryerson, founder and president of the Population Media Center. Check him out at populationmedia.org. You're sure to find much more about the unimpeachable approach to global population issues taken by a real master of his craft. We'll be sure to have Bill back on the show, so email us with any comments or questions you want us to raise. I'm Brian Check, and you've been listening to the Steady Stater Podcast. See you next time.